millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe. And Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and the Asia-Pacific. Policy Forum Pod is brought to you by PolicyForum.net, based at the Crawford School of Public Policy. Please check them out at crawford.anu.edu. Now, this might come as a surprise to you, but Martin Pierce is still away. My name is Kim Cuneo, and I'm the head of school at the ANU School of Music, and here to prove that a musician can think about more than music, that there might still be the odd musical diversion today. If you have been listening regularly, and let's be honest, who wouldn't? You'd know that last month, Dr. Anna Hunter took over as Queen of the Castle for two weeks leading discussions on the future of food and our healthcare system in the wake of COVID-19. Not wanting to be outdone, I've launched my own little coup d'etat and will be your guest host for the next few weeks with Professor Denise Ferris, the head of the ANU School of Art and Design. Last week, I had the pleasure of being in conversation with Indigenous scientist and water researcher Kate Harridan and geographer Jessica Weir in a podcast that explored water, decolonization and connections to country. So how would we describe what is going on now? Our first guest is Reverend Dr. Stephanie Dowrick. Stephanie is an author, activist, and interfaith minister. Stephanie was the first and managing director of the influential British publishing house, The Women's Press. Some of her books include Intimacy and Solitude, Everyday Kindness, and Seeking the Sacred. Stephanie has presented regularly on ABC Radio and has written for the Sydney Morning Herald for many years. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you, Kim. Thank you. Our next guest is Dr. Paul Bowett. Paul is a paediatrician at Royal Darwin Hospital with a long-time involvement in Indigenous health. A life member of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians, he was recipient of the Rural Medal in 2008. Paul represents paediatricians on Federal Council of the Australian Medical Association. He has twice been awarded the Australian Medical Association President's Medal in 2002 and 2016 for passionate and persistent advocacy for improvements in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. Paul received the Order of Australia Medal, OAM, in 2011, and in 2018, he took a lead medical role in the Kids Off Nauru campaign. Welcome, Paul. Thanks, Kim. Thank you for having me. So now we get to the fun part, where I get to hear from both of you about something that's really important. And I wanted to start with you, Paul. Uh, could you just tell us about what being a paediatrician in the Northern Territory means regarding caring for Indigenous youth? 
and caring for young asylum seekers who come to you? Look, paediatricians have a different view of the world from most other people, as well as uh, the attraction of dealing with the individual very sick child. We um, also see these children as uh, having the potential to uh, grow up with uh, chronic diseases uh, and be affected for the rest of their lives if they're continually subjected to adverse early events. The uh, the beauty of the job in the Northern Territory when I first arrived in 1977 was that both these aspects were looked at by my mentor and then, then uh, director, Dr. Alan Walker, who was the first paediatrician to work outside of a major city in Australia, uh, as well as uh, teaching the uh, acute management of very, very sick children. Um, Alan encouraged all of us to work in primary health care by doing regular outreach uh, to remote Aboriginal communities, which I've been doing now for 40 years, and also developed a, a sense of of community and a sense of um, justice uh, when things weren't going the way they should. And um, this was a constant theme dealing with Aboriginal children, particularly from remote areas, uh, but also became an increasingly common theme for uh, the detention centres which were established in the Northern Territory. And um, we had quite a lot to do with looking after those children, uh, looking after their acute uh, illnesses, and then advocating for a change in their circumstances because none of us really saw the sense in fixing these children, often suffering uh, mental health issues as well as physical issues, and then returning them to a situation where those particularly mental health issues would, would continue. So... The two worked hand in hand, really, and and I think the main the main message for me uh, when I first arrived there was that not only does one who wants to be a good paediatrician concentrate on the individual and the illnesses that that particular child has, but also think of the longer term implications not only for that child but for the groups that they belong to. Paul, that's such an interesting answer. Because embedded is this this idea that you were there to do one job, but suddenly over time you had to take on another job. What was that transition like from being essentially someone who is providing healthcare to someone who has to then advocate in, in the larger world? The transition was somewhat difficult, but once again it was the philosophy and the practice of Alan Walker that made it quite easy. He set a fine example got me interested in the Australian Medical Association at at an early stage where he was the secretary in the Northern Territory and um, ran the AMA out of the corner of one of his offices. Um, So it was through, through, mainly through the Australian Medical Association that I became interested. I did a couple of uh, leadership courses and media courses with them early on uh, when I saw the importance of trying to present the message from those that couldn't be heard uh, to the wider community, um, and you know it's it's like that. Uh, it's fairly apprehended, a lot of apprehension at first, but once you take the leap, it uh, becomes second nature, really. And um, and I guess that's been what's guided me. If I see things that are wrong, and I feel I can do something about it. Um, 
then I have no hesitation in getting involved, and that's why I belong to all of these other groups. They all have their separate advocacy roles and um, are keen to take on paediatricians who are prepared to use their own voice to um, you know, project those those particular issues that they want projected. Paul, I think you've, you've spoken something it's, that is potentially truth to power and much more, but could you be a little bit more detailed? Could you tell us about the sort of things you've had to do, both with the AMA and other organisations, and as a thinker and an activist, because I think that's what you're describing yourself as. But it's this unlikely activist, this person who says, well, something isn't working and I need to speak out. How does this work in an organisation such as the AMA? Well, once again, it's um, the the advantage I've, I've had of some really good leaders who have recognised that doctors should be more than just um, caring for the individual illnesses, but do have an important role uh, to play in projecting the you know, the wider community needs for health. Um, they have a, you know, a, a much, a, a very important role to project, for instance, the, the whole concept of the social determinants of health and more recently now the moral determinants of health. Um, and people, people like even Bruce Shepherd, who was regarded as fairly right wing back in the old days, really uh, felt that the state of Aboriginal health, in particular in remote communities, was appalling, and had people like Brendan Nelson following him, and then Karen Phelps following uh, following on from Brendan, who established, for instance, a special branch of the AMA called the Task Force of Indigenous Health where it was important that this small group of advocates met with Aboriginal people and Aboriginal leaders, and uh, I chaired that for some time earlier on and earlier on. But that's now been ongoing for over 20 years, and every single health issue you can imagine that affects Indigenous people has been covered in those, in those meetings. Once a year there would be a report card put out on the state of Indigenous health uh, in the country, and trying to hold government to account for promises that may have been made and policies that have been stated but never never fulfilled, but also educating the community, many of whom had no idea of the degree of disadvantage that some of these people live under. Paul, thanks for those beautiful answers. I think it's a, a really important time to turn to you, Stephanie, because you've done such similar work but in a very different manner. Now, you've written for years in, in the public sphere about injustice, politics, and its larger significances to us, you know, both as people but as moral beings. You, you write morally and ethically, and you speak truth to power. Could you tell us how you do this and, and why you do this? That's a huge question and a most interesting one. Um, how do I do it? I do it because I think the alternative is not possible. I think if we are to be fully alive, we have to be engaged with the state of humanity. But I also want to say that there have been different points in my life when I have found this, I have found it self-evident my entire life. Since since my mid-teens, I, I, I can reckon the moment when I realized, yes, I'm a peace activist. That was my first realization long before the women's movement and long before civil rights and so on. I recognized, yes, I am a peace activist and I have really stuck to that. Um, and that moment was when I, I was 14, actually. 
so I've always thought it was self-evident that we would engage with issues that that progress the common good if we possibly can. And I also recognized what a privilege it is to be able to do so, that if we're not just fighting for where the next meal is and not totally distracted by the fact that we have nowhere to sleep tonight, uh, we are privileged. Uh, and so how do we use that privilege? But also it's a set comes from a sense of oneness with the rest of humanity and with the, you know, with the species we share the earth with and with the earth itself and so on and so on. However, I would also add that there have been times in my life in which it has definitely been not necessarily easier, but there's been more vitality than there is now. I think it's a, this is a very, very difficult moment in which to be an activist. And there are a number of reasons for that, but one of them is the success that the media has had in persuading people to vote against their own interests, but also to support issues that are profoundly against their own interests. And this has definitely changed over my years of, um, over my years of, of activism. So for example, um, in the 1970s, when I was, uh, responsible with other people for founding the radical publishing house called the Women's Press in London. And at that time, there were a number of really, really interesting progressive publishing houses. And it, and they were very necessary because it meant that people who were really thinking deeply had a place to go where they didn't have to translate their ideas and water them down in order just to satisfy commercial interests. Because Actually, what we showed was that it could be commercially viable as well to publish ideas that, that actually progressed our, our, our lot as a human family. And at that time, it was possible, um, to get all kinds of discussion going in a huge variety of newspapers. I'm not saying it was easy. It was never easy. The pushback was always fierce. Um, always fierce. But the pushback now doesn't even need to be fierce because there are so few outlets where really progressive ideas can be discussed or, 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 or tried out or, um, you know, we, we are living in quite dispiriting times. And the, the challenge for me is that I'm not only writing about politics. I'm also writing about questions of how we should live. Now, politics affects that and how we live affects politics. I, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering the old phrase from the women's liberation movement. The personal is political and it certainly is. But in my roles as a, as a writer and as an interfaith minister, and I, I used to work also as a psychotherapist, I also have to find a way within myself to really encourage other people and to remind myself and them simultaneously that we are, we do have the qualities within us, um, that we can, 
encourage, that will resource us. Um, but sometimes it feels very much like the task of Sisyphus, that we're pushing a huge stone partway up the hill and down it comes again. So I think one of the absolutely fundamental qualities that every um, social activist needs at this time is great courage and great courage simply to be tenacious, to say it's worth it, you know, that our human family is worth it. You know, so there are days when I say to myself or I say to Paul or other people, oh, I don't know if I can read another newspaper. I don't know if I can look at another news bulletin. But if I don't, who will? I, and the people who are unable to look, who are totally silenced, don't have this opportunity of will I or won't I? So again, I have to come back to the fact I am very privileged. I'm privileged to notice these things. I'm privileged in the um, access that I've had to a, an analysis of our way of living that is deeply humanist, as well as deeply informed by the spiritual traditions of our global world. Um, and even at my age, um, I still feel obliged to do something about it. You know, it's the old Jewish saying, if not you, who will? Um, and I, and I still feel that, but I do again want to emphasize this is a very hard time in which to be really positive because the pushback is so, it's hugely well funded. The destructive industries are themselves funding it. Because what we're also talking about is our attention, not just to people and, and species, but to the planet. So the pushback is massive, um, which makes it incredibly important that we encourage one another and how we encourage one another. So so a, a small part of my activism, but I think quite an important part, is to be very supportive of other people working in ways that I think have true value. Stephanie, thank you. That was a big question, but it was an even bigger answer. Thank you. But what I'm getting is this sense of it's a very difficult balancing act because on one level there's moral outrage and an indignation for the things that really we feel need to change, and you've both expressed that so clearly. But at the same time, Stephanie, you've alluded to really something that maybe Gandhi summed up better than we can, which is an eye for the eye will make the whole world blind. Yeah. So at some point we, we have to have restorative justice or we need to find ways to, to make things better without constantly playing the blame game. And that's very hard when there's people who really are to blame in the injustices of the world. How can you respond to that, Stephanie? Oh, look, I, I can respond to that because I think we even need to, I mean, restorative justice has a huge place, especially in the, in the courts and so on. And especially with, with, people who are massively disadvantaged and then hauled before the courts. I mean, it's just absurd that they would simply be punished when there have been all the, all the determinants that have got them there in the first place. Um, but even beyond those sorts of questions about justice and social justice, even beyond that, there's another saying of um, Gandhi, which is, you know, my life is my message. And 
what he gives us with that sense is the possibility that we must envision something better. So beyond protest, we must constantly be envisioning how we could live um, much more sustainably. I don't mean just sustainably, emotionally sustainably, spiritually sustainably. And actually, we have the answers. The, the answers have been with us, you know, from since time began. I mean, we just have to think about the golden rule. If we followed the golden rule, or if we thought the golden rule was too hard, do unto others as you would like them to do to you, then let's go to the silver rule. Do not do what you would not like done to yourself. I mean, how simple is that? So, you know, we're talking ethics 101, but the real challenge is to get this message through. So one other thing I, I would just add to that, I noticed in Australia where having conversations even like this it sometimes seems really, really very difficult and very daunting. I've lived in five different countries, and I think Australia is one of the hardest countries to have this kind of conversation in. People are very avoidant of it. Um, and I don't necessarily want you to ask me why, because that's a complicated picture too. But what I also notice, and this is far more positive, is how readily people respond generously when they're given an opportunity to do so. So when I talk about vision, what I really would love to see, not just from social activists, but in the community more broadly, even with people who would not define themselves as activists, is somehow a reignition of this generosity. Because frankly, and I've written a lot about happiness, I've written a lot about emotional and moral well-being. And when people are able to liberate some quality of generosity in themselves rather than othering other people or condemning other people or blaming other people, when they're able to do that for others, of course their own well-being is enhanced. So it's the old story. We can't improve the lives of other people without also benefiting ourselves. This is not about self-sacrifice. It's about the realization that the quality of life, for the quality of life, we actually depend on one another. We are utterly interdependent. Paul, I have one more question for you. Stephanie's opened up a really big, broad you know, moral compasses for us to think about. Do you get the time to think about these things in this very practical job that you do? Well, I imagine people are suffering. There's a lot of quick interventions that need to be done. And I remember one time talking to you a number of years ago where you talked about the fact that when, you know, when a mother and a child come and they need care, there's there's desperate action needed. But there's also desperate attention to the fact that these people might be taken and have to leave the country when the treatment's not fully over in your in your mind. How do you balance these words of Stephanie's with your day to day working life? I I'm nourished by the fact that um, I probably have the best job on the planet. Um, that not only can I care for this uh, mother and child, but I can also I'm also in a position where I can. Um, I can advocate for improvements in their lot um, 
and that gives me a great deal of satisfaction. I'm, I'm, I'm privileged as a, as a doctor. Um, I'm well remunerated um, and I get a great deal of satisfaction out of uh, giving back. I also get a great deal of satisfaction out of working with colleagues, both medical and non-medical. And just that example you gave of uh, the children on Nauru, um, it, it was it was incredible for me to work with GetUp and also the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre and the human rights groups um, in, in a in a coordinated campaign, followed on the backs of a lot of work done by a lot of groups earlier on, but to actually go to Canberra and speak as a doctor to the individual politicians, and none of them could turn their back on the stories I was telling. And of course, they were all, you know, that inner that inner commitment to to humanity shone through in every single one of them that I spoke to. But uh, and eventually we got a result, which was great. But uh, you know, it, it 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 is a struggle. Um, I, I get a great deal of satisfaction out of doing what I'm doing. I think I've got, I have a great job. Um, I'm, I'm lucky I'm in a situation where I can continue doing that for the foreseeable future, uh, depending on how health issues go. I think your answer is the cue for us to take a well-needed ad break. We'll see you in just a few minutes. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back to Policy Forum Pod. I'm still here with Stephanie Durek and Paul Bowart, two very different guests, but both supercharged thinkers and thought makers in their fields. I want to get straight back to it. Paul, what's the state of affairs on the ground in the Northern Territory with COVID-19? Fairly positive, um, particularly because there haven't been any active cases in the Northern Territory uh, for many, many weeks. Um, There was a coming together of the community, um, the whole of the Territory, uh, led mainly by Aboriginal leaders who recognised that if this uh, disease was to get into particularly remote communities, which uh, suffer enough of their uh, enough disadvantage as it is, then it would be devastating. And uh, I've I've been really impressed with the, the way the community has come together. They have been guided by Aboriginal people themselves wanting wanting uh, these restrictions put not only on the territory borders but also on the borders of the smaller communities. There have been a lot of changes. It's been really difficult to get out and do the regular remote uh, outreach services that uh, all of us do so that um, at last telehealth is coming to the fore with this and um, 
uh, telehealth has proved a real um, boon for providing healthcare across across the top end of, of Australia, particularly. And um, so there have been some definite advantages. We haven't had to have the the same periods of lockdown that have affected other other jurisdictions and uh, people at the moment are, are reasonably freely moving throughout the territory, but still fully aware of uh, fully aware of the fact that the disease is still there and we are still very much at risk. But to me, the highlights have been the way the community has come together and listened to the Aboriginal people themselves about about uh, what could potentially happen if we didn't take this very seriously, and then the advances that have been made through telehealth, which have come on really suddenly, and uh, which I think will continue once this uh, disastrous disease has gone. That really is a bit of positivity, and you know something that we could just see so much suffering in. But there's a bigger harder picture and that's closing the gap could i ask you because i think so many people in canberra where where i am based and so many of us you know we call it the canberra bubble because you've visited both of you visited many times there is that sense of remoteness from the remote parts of australia what's closing the gap what's working with it and what's not working with it for you let's be honest to be honest, not much is working. Look, when I first was in the Territory in, in the late 70s and, and uh, my early work there, I was seeing children a lot sicker, a lot more malnutrition, um, a lot more deaths from infectious diseases than we are seeing now, mainly through the help of vaccines and uh, particularly through the establishment of primary health care uh, clinics, both the ones run by the government and by Aboriginal controlled medical services, so that uh, I'm not seeing the same degree of malnutrition that I saw uh, 30, 40 years ago. Um, having said that, though, there are still significant issues of poverty. You know, Australians may not realise this, but um, 2% of the children I see will have lungs that are on the verge of being completely destroyed from a disease called bronchiectasis. So that's one in 50 kids. 2% of children and adults will have acute rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease, many of whom die in their um, in their 20s and 30s, many of whom require surgery, some as young as uh, five or six years old. Um, chronic ear disease continues, um, various other conditions that, uh, such as iron deficiency, etc., continue. All of these, is, all of these, are diseases of poverty. They're uh, really uh, uh, able to be fixed, and the way to fix them, honestly, is to stop talking about listening to Aboriginal leaders, but actually listen to Aboriginal leaders and listen to the people that are in these communities and provide the services and the resources for them to fix the problem themselves. I've always seen my role as somebody being there to um, assist until Aboriginal people themselves uh, have, have, the, have, have the resources and, and the education and the job opportunities to fix things themselves. And it's always been a... a a saying amongst uh, amongst our group that you know Aboriginal people who are really quite severely disadvantaged, particularly in those remote communities, because of the tyranny of distance, for instance, but also because there hasn't haven't been effective 
uh, policies put in place. Those people who are disadvantaged shouldn't be doubly disadvantaged by having a second-rate health system. So that's always been the principle and the guiding principle by which places like the Royal Darwin Hospital work. We want to provide first-class health care. And then, of course, we, you know, we're more in tune than others around the country as to the social determinants and paediatricians are more in tune to the long-term effects of kids having repeated adverse childhood events. Paul, you've talked about so many things incredibly there, but I want to ask you one very specific thing. If you're to do this work with Aboriginal communities, I imagine it needs to be decentralised. So it can't just be people getting in a bus and coming up to Darwin Hospital. How does this physically work? How do you get to communities and how does health work on the ground for you? Right. Um, well, I've been getting to communities for 40 years and um, so have most of the other paediatricians in the Territory and so have the other, uh, the adult physicians as well, uh, surgeons, um, ophthalmologists, all of us get there. How do we get there? We get there through um, light aircraft. That's been a worry in the past because of the near misses from a lot of the fleet that hasn't been properly maintained but fortunately that's coming together well now uh, we we have uh, much better communication now there's only two communities that uh, that I cannot have uh, audio visual contact with and one's in southern Arnhem Land and the, the other's on the Gulf the retrieval services, um, the care flight and the raw flying doctor services have, have improved uh, dramatically and so that retrievals uh, are much uh, easier to implement and quicker to implement. But the main thing has been on the ground where the primary health care centres are much better equipped to look after the acute phases of of, of acute illnesses that are going and support um, the patients until uh, until retrievals can be made. Um, I hope that's giving you an idea. There's a lot of travel involved. Um, that's often dirty, gritty work. Uh, the the uh, accommodation's never all that brilliant and the bring your own food to a lot of communities, but um, but it gets done and... You know, the good thing that I see over time is that, um, you know, you develop a real relationship with the people, that uh, they trust you, um, they're willing to listen to people that they know in terms of uh, accepting Western medicine. I'd like to just add something, not about Paul's work in the, in the Territory, which I have observed with great admiration also for his patience in persisting with when things might seem so hard that many people would give up. But I also want to say that for people listening uh, for whom the Territory is a less familiar place, that there are issues of social class also here. And we, we're, beginning, we're beginning very slowly to recognise the devastating effects of, of uh of racism, but we're not talking nearly enough in Australia about the effects of um, class disadvantage. So, for example, the number of children across Australia who are suffering from food insecurity 
as well as housing and security. So Paul could give you a very vivid picture, I know, of what it means in the territory for a, a, a child to be living in a household with, you know, 16 or 17 people and maybe one bathroom and, uh, and, and very poor access to, to decent food and so on. But we're also talking about really rich cities, which are not far from anywhere, which are global cities where we have disgraceful numbers of families living with housing insecurity and job insecurity. And we have phenomenal numbers of children in Australia who are suffering from food insecurity. Um, you know, this, this, this ought to be, this ought to be something where we are not just morally outraged, but where we are effective in saying, this isn't good enough. You know, it's not good enough that we should all be, you know, looking at the at, at color pictures of somebody's, um, you know, latest $12 million house and thinking that that's terrific. We should be asking ourselves, how can we, as one of the richest countries in the world, live with ourselves when there are children going to school every day hungry or when there is no school available because of COVID or circumstances? So, so they're even hungrier because the school's not able to provide them with food or where we have a situation where the fastest growing number of homeless in Australia are women over 55. I mean, it's just completely absurd. As regards the homelessness of women aged over 55, not all of those women have had class disadvantage um, throughout their lives. Some of them are well-educated, middle class um, in, in background, but have found themselves so destitute that their choice is either to stay where they could possibly have, you know, old friends and support networks, or to go somewhere where they know nobody, where they may be able to afford to rent a single room. I mean, these are, this is completely ridiculous in a, in a country as rich as Australia is. And, and I find the way I'm, I want to go back to the media again, because that's my world, you know, I'm in the world of publishing and in the world of media and the way in which the media raises certain issues and makes a kind of hysterical demand for, for certain groups. So, so one example would be, of course, the, um, the business at the last election of the franking credits. I mean, there was a, it was, it was obscene that the franking credits of a, of a tiny number of Australians, uh, were, were described as being under threat from a really not very left wing push from the Labour Party to try to even out a little bit on this whole question of, of housing and financial advantage and the energy that went into protecting franking credits and so on and so on um, was was so enormous and yet do we see anything like that energy going in uh, from the mainstream media and from the parties that we call a government? Um, do we see anything remotely like that 
on behalf of children who are suffering food insecurity or families suffering housing insecurity or homelessness. No, we don't. We we see almost nothing. And when the stories are raised, they're kind of, you know, five-minute phenomenon, and then we go on with the next distraction. I feel very, very strongly about the gross imbalance of energy that is given to protecting the interests of the very, very few against the interests of actually rather too many. Thank you, Stephanie. I have a question for you both, and following on from really what you've both said, we we can see this in a class sense, and of course there is so much to make that available. I have another question about short and long-termism, because it seems to me, and I want to give you a little example. One of the, the things I love about the ANU is two and a half years ago, a few of us went over to Tokyo to meet area studies academics in Japan and China. And the Japanese colleagues were quite mind-blowing because what they said was, the problem with your country is that everyone's thinking about what's happening in the next electoral cycle. Yes. We have no public intellectuals who are thinking about what to do in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Turn on the TV and you'll see in the government-run TV stations people talking about the medium and the long term of Japan and that's how we've been able to get over the myth of economic growth. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you both, how could we do that here? How could we think beyond the immediate? Because it's so pressing. What's the way for both of you? Because you're both involved in long-term campaigns to make things better. Two things from my point of view. Firstly, there was some way of convincing the government that um, you know their, their role is to society um, that their role is, as well as defending society and defending our shores, is to ensure the health of its uh, citizens, to convince the government that just as much effort should be put into the health of our societies as is put into defence of our societies, and that uh, a change in the huge amounts of monies that are going into defence um, come into the health area and particularly the social determinants which are all preventable all fixable and I guess the other thing from you know from a medical point of view is um, I would really like to see more colleagues um, accept the fact that we we do have a responsibility we are privileged we we do have a responsibility and we do have the ability to speak not only for our individual patients, but also for the wider community. So in the long term, this is happening. I, I know in the medical schools, there's a lot of emphasis going on the social and preventative aspects of health. Down the track, I think it needs to go. Stephanie, I'd like your thoughts, because it seems to me that in order for you to answer the question, you need to think about this big picture that you do, which is that we have moral selves, we have ethical selves, and how do we get those to be a greater part of the public debate? Look, I think it's an incredibly important question because it really goes to whether people recognise their own power to contribute to a society that they would actually benefit from or whether they have been convinced that they themselves are powerless. So one of the great defeaters in, in contemporary society, and this is this has grown stronger, I think, in the last decade or so, is a kind of defeatism 
that emerges as indifference or cynicism. You know, so people will say, oh, all the political parties are the same or all politicians are this or, you know, you know, make those kinds of generalizations that are actually not founded in fact. So I think one of the huge things is to empower people or not not to empower them, but to to encourage them to recognize that they themselves can contribute to something that we benefit from um, collectively. And and how do we do this? Well, we have to do it in a multiplicity of ways, depending on which corner we're speaking from. So, for example, in terms of our parenting, in terms of our um our engagement with people, you know, both casually and more intimately and intensely through our daily lives. How do we, what do we regard the workplace as? Do we regard the workplace as just somewhere that should be generating profit? Or do we look at a workplace and say, what is the social value of the work that we are collectively producing? And what is the social value of of the way in which we interact with one another? So, for example, Paul made the very good comment um, about how much money we spend on defense in in this nation. And that's one area where the government is more than prepared to look ahead and say, we're going to spend an extra $270 billion over the next 10 years and then whine about not being able to increase New Start. I mean, th- this is insane. This is insanity. And somehow a subdued public accepts it. Oh, yes, of course, we have to spend all that money on defense. No, what we're doing is propping up the most destructive industry on earth. We're propping it up with almost no protest from, from society. So where it serves the government well to look ahead, they will do so. Where it serves them not to, they will refuse. So what we can do as citizens, as as colleagues, is also attend to all the real places in our lives. So back to workplace again, as well as having a ridiculous amount of money. No, it's an obscene amount of money being spent on these so-called defense industries, which are actually, it's weapons of death, let's face it. It's weapons of destruction. It's weapons of mass destruction, state-sanctioned. We also need to look really personally. We're a country with a disgraceful level of um, domestic violence. We're a country with disgraceful levels of bullying. We're a country with far too low levels of emotional and moral literacy. So parents, for example, in primary schools particularly, are being asked to choose between uh, so-called scripture lessons, m- many of which are right-wing Christian, um, or th- should their kids go into ethics? Well, actually, at this state, if, at this point in the 21st century, every child, every child should be exposed to and being given the advantages of constant ethical education. It should not be a choice. We should have it at every single level. But we should also be funding, we should be funding centers of excellence 
in peace studies. We should be funding centers of excellence in the study of ethics. What does it actually mean to live sustainably along one another? These should be primary questions along with the questions of how we manage climate change. We need, we need a radical shift in how we think about our personal commitment to a more equitable and just society. You're an artist. How can people like you and I enter the policy debate without being dismissed for not having the real political chops? Because it's so easy when the artist gets involved and people say, that's not your role. Your role is to entertain. But, you know, we have artists who are funded by the Australia Council for the Arts. And when they actually then speak ill of the country that has supported them, they're almost traitorous. So what is the role of the artist in in this time to you? Well, I think the government is actually perfectly well aware that we do a great deal more than entertain. I think that the very fact that artists have been so starved uh, and and intellectuals more generally have been starved and um, the ABC has been, you know, many of the many of the finest and most ethical people have been chucked out and the universities are in chaos. This tells us that we have a government uh, which is actually afraid of people who will ask questions or people who will demonstrate through their art not just what's wrong but what could be right. I, I mean, artists have to be visionaries or they're not really artists, they're just reporters. I mean, we have to be visionary. We have to offer something more than entertainment, although entertainment itself can be very beautiful. Entertainment or the the experience of beauty can itself be transformative. How are we to lift people's spirits in order that it's worth making this world a, a, a more wonderful place? This world is wonderful. This world is awesome. This world is wondrous. This world is something for us to share. And it's artists who amplify that and exemplify that. So if somebody says, you haven't got policy chops, I would say, if policy is your thing, do that. But I think that what we are doing is, is, is really making it real. Why we need significant policy change, but not just policy change. You could have policy change till the cows came home and the cows could still come home to homelessness. We have to have behavioral changes. We have to have a change in consciousness. So if I go back again to my years at the Women's Press, what what we were talking about then was consciousness raising. I'm still in the business of consciousness raising. So whether I'm writing about something extremely personal, as I've done in many of my books, which is, you know, how do I get up in the morning and and and, and make a life with the people around me? whether I'm dealing with that or whether I'm dealing with these, you know, very big questions of how how we should collectively live. Um, this is all about consciousness. Why am I in this life? What is my life for? What is your life for? How does my life have meaning? How do we, how do we, re, how do we learn to respect one another? How do we learn to think of our human family much more collectively and with far fewer divisions and harshness how how do i learn to look at another person and see their beauty these are huge huge questions and you know policy is very necessary 
but transcending the uh, transcending those issues of of doing is also absolutely vital what we're really talking about is a change of consciousness if we just to finish if we even look at how we regard nature we ourselves are part of nature if we were to love our natural world much more if we were to love ourselves much more so many of the problems that we are apparently facing and struggling with would become self-evident in their solutions we need to love our lives we need to love one another we need to respect one another and learn that difference itself is not frightening that we can cope with difference what we can't cope with is mass hostility Stephanie Darick, thank you for sharing with us all you are and quite a lot of what you've done and your positive vision for what can still be done. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Kim. Thank you very much. Paul Bauer, thank you also for the work you've done over so many years. Selfless work, but work that is grounded in practicality and the care of others. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Kim. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this special episode of Policy Forum Pod. This was part of the non-hostile takeover here at Policy Forum Pod. We'd love to hear what you thought of the discussion, because what a discussion it was today. Reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum, or send us an email podcast at policyforum.net. Even better, could you imagine joining the Pod Squad? You can find us on Facebook under Policy Forum Pod. This is your direct line into the members of the Policy Forum Pod team, other listeners, and even some of our panellists. Wouldn't it be pretty good to hang out with Paul or Stephanie, for example? Plus, you get early access to our Ask Policy Forum series, the podcast where you ask us all the questions you want. We're really excited to welcome you. Before we go, a quick reminder, please subscribe to Policy Forum Pod on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you usually get your podcasts from. And if you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you leave us a review. We love hearing from you, and it's a big help for us in getting the word out about this podcast. I mentioned last week we have an exciting public service announcement for you, which has already started. Over six weeks, Policy Forum Pod will be taking a close look at poverty through a special Making the Invisible Visible miniseries. The host, Aiti Bagheri, is joined by Crawford School researchers from the Individual Measure of Multidimensional Poverty, IMMP project, a gender-sensitive measurement of multidimensional poverty that has revealed some incisive and in-depth information about patterns of poverty, and doesn't that relate to today's discussion? The IMMP doesn't just assess how many people are poor, but rather how they experience poverty. So throughout the series, we'll break down the figures, get behind the data, and see how it can help policymakers better direct resources in this most critical of global challenges. Have we piqued your interest? New episodes will be released every Tuesday through the Policy Forum pod, please hit subscribe so you don't miss out. We'll be back next week with another episode where Denise Ferris, professor from the ANU School of Art and Design, and I go head-to-head with some great arts practitioners and thinkers to explore the perilous state of the arts in COVID time. Bye for now.
Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com.